I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm really excited today because this is such, such an interesting story. So we've got with us today Mark Goldberg, who's a historian, writer and ex-Israeli Defence Force. His most recent book is called Beyond the Green Line, a British volunteer in the Israeli Defence Force during the Al... Al I'm going to say this wrong. Mark, you've got to help me out here. Al-Aqsa. Al-Aqsa Infitada. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we're not going to be talking about that today, though, because we're going to be talking about one very specific man. We're going to be talking about Teddy Kolek. Hi, Mark. Hi. Great uh, to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this guy. He's, he's had such an interesting would you call it a career he is the jewish james bond he's just some of the stuff he's done is just is just absolutely awesome right okay enough of us chatting because we spent about 30 minutes before uh, we started recording this podcast chatting um you just told us who he was the israeli james bond but do we know anything about his early life yeah, we know that he, well, originally he's from, um, he was born in Hungary and grew up in Vienna um, to kind of a, a middle, maybe upper middle class Jewish family, you might say. Um, his dad was a banker for the Rothschild Bank, um, which wasn't something that appealed to, to Kolek. Um, he was actually named Teddy. The parents gave him, his parents gave him the name Theodore uh, after Theodore Herzl, the founder of like Zionism. So they were a Zionist family, um, but he was never known as Theodore. He was always known as Teddy, um, but he took to Zionism from an early age and basically had no interest in school, but a lot of interest in kind of Zionism and his, his Zionist youth movement, uh, which was called Blue and White. Um, so his early his early life, apparently, according to his biographer, is was all about kind of bunking off school doing things for the youth movement and then uh, making his way to mandate Palestine to live um, as early as he could. Uh, yeah. So he got there in his I think, early twenties. Sounds like a cheeky chap who um, just didn't want to go to school really. Yeah. He got quite well known. His reputation was throughout his life was that he was known quite well as a drinker um, or to use the Yiddish word schmoozer someone who can just get on with other people, uh, make them like him uh, and then convince them to do things for him. Um, and that, that served him well. And, you know, as he grew up, he was kind of working in the intelligence service of, of the Jewish agency. And then one of the founder members of the Israeli foreign intelligence service, the Mossad. 
Um, and he's quite well known for some of their Mossad's earliest successes. You've got to, to be that kind of agent. I think you've got to have some sort of charm behind you. He just comes across as very suave in everything that he does and, and in every kind of, um, anecdote that, that you read about him. It's always kind of him talking somebody else into doing something or succeeding in getting information out of someone over cognac, uh, in some, you know, in, in some kind of club jazz bar somewhere. He was very active in Istanbul, uh, during World War Two. Um, and there's a lot of anecdotes about him that come from there as well. We are, we're going to get, we're going to get to that stage. We will get to that stage. So before, before we start on the Second World War, because that breaks out, um, August, my gosh, October says the World War One historian, uh, World War Two historian. Gosh, not, no idea what's happening to me today, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Um, yeah. so what was he actually doing in the late 1930s before that all kicked off? So. Well, what happened was that he got out of, so if you remember that, you know, Hitler takes power 1933 in Germany, then there's the Anschluss later on with um, his native Austria. But by the time of the Anschluss, he was already in Palestine. So so at that point, he was kind of founding a communal settlement um, in the north of Israel called Engev, which, uh, and then was later voted uh, to be the Mukhtar, the kind of village head. Um, and, and, and that's when he started really deploying his kind of skills at making uh, good relationships and he made apparently very good relationships with the local um, Arab communities and very good relationships with the local British uh, forces and civil civil service people. Uh, so he managed to kind of bring a lot to Kibbutz Engev and kind of, kind of became known as a, uh, a cultural centre um, as much as anything else and they were some of the first people to engage in tourism and really see that as an industry and also music they're well known for bringing orchestras to Engev near the Kinneret, uh, near a uh, 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 kind of lake near there, um, who would perform at this small kind of unknown settlement, uh, mainly due to his force of personality and succeeding in bringing people over. Um, but ultimately, the guy was kind of a servant of the of the of the cause. So um, he worked for the Jewish agency that was. Um, you know, kind of the the authority in Palestine representing Jewish people, um, and they kind of sent him when when oppression of Jewish people in Europe became more intense. So they put him to work uh, in Europe and in Great Britain in trying to help refugees, Jewish refugees, escape from Europe. Um, uh, at first, they sent him to the UK where he kind of worked on finding the on the logistics effectively where where are people who have succeeded in escaping Europe for the United Kingdom where are they you know physically going to go uh, what are they going to do when they get there how are they how are they going to get there um, and part of that was uh, in 1938 he ended up going to back to his native Vienna where he met with um, Adolf Eichmann to secure 3,000 exit permits for Jews, for Austrian Jews, um, to get out. So um, he actually talks about that. Um, it's mentioned in his biography. Um, yeah, they've written, at the end of a large hall sat a young man in, in an impe- impeccably ironed uniform and conspicuous swastika. His expression was cold. He did not offer Teddy a seat, but presented a series of specific and practical questions. 
I saw before me, Teddy would relate to recall, a Nazi official. And while we all despised the Nazis, none of us could have dreamed of the atrocities that would follow. Um, that's kind of his only recollection that, I, that I'm aware of, of, of his meeting with Adolf Eichmann. Although, of course, the Mossad in 1961 brought him to Israel for trial. That's um, that's so incredible. He met Adolf Eichmann before the Second World War, before all of this absolute horrific shit kicks off, basically. Yeah, it was in 39. It was literally just before. It must have been just before it all kicked off. Okay, so we've hit, well, Second World War. Where is he and what is he doing? Right, well, he's doing a bunch of things. He's back in Palestine, really. Uh, at the very beginning of it he's kind of in Europe um doing the, the activities that I discussed beforehand but he's quickly brought back to Palestine and the thing about Kolek is he speaks a whole bunch of languages you know he speaks uh German he speaks English he speaks Hebrew um I think he picked up Arabic even um and he's able to serve as a liaison he's actually the perfect liaison figure between the Jewish agency and the British army and you know um the, the strategy of the Jewish agency at the time was kind of um, very succinctly put by Ben-Gurion, which was, um, we'll fight the white paper um, like there is no war, and we'll fight the war like there is no white paper. So the white paper refers to the amount of Jews who are allowed to immigrate to Palestine, which was very few during World War II. Um, but fighting the war ultimately took precedence because of you know, the, the extent to which the Jews were being persecuted by the Nazis uh, and the visceral hatred that all of the Jews really felt towards Hitler and wanted to get involved in fighting that war. So Teddy Kollek's job was to engage with the British and give them whatever they wanted. And mainly what they wanted was a specific kind of manpower that they could use to fight the Germans with. And what the Jews could provide was a whole um, plethora of European uh, native German speakers uh, or native Polish speakers, basically people who understood um, the, both Germany and the occupied countries of Europe very, very well, and who could be trained as soldiers and parachuted back in um, to occupied Europe to work as agents for the British. Um, and Collett performed that function with some skill. That's incredible. Yeah, but so his, his real liaison with, was with the special operations executive. Um, wow. he worked with them. Yeah. So he worked with them a lot to, yeah, to provide them with the manpower that they needed in order to kind of do these kinds of um, spying slash sabotage roles. Question. Do you know if he worked with women as well? Sure. He worked with women. Yeah, absolutely. That would have been, I, I wonder if he ever worked with Kristina Skarbek then, because she, she's, she's my favourite SOE agent, um, being Polish, beautiful and, and incredibly, incredibly clever. Where, where, where was her area of operations? Was she kind of trained in the UK and then, and then sent in that way? Yes, yes. So it's unlikely that he would have worked with her because he was doing this from the Middle East. Ah, uh, she, I think she ended up in the Middle East at one stage, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it's not surprising, I suppose, because the Middle East became a bit of a hub for the espionage aspect. It was quite far behind the lines of the actual war. But I mean, if you think of occupied Europe and, and follow kind of the limits, the very borders of the Axis-controlled territory, you, you basically hit Turkey. Um, and Istanbul became kind of that gateway city, which was not under Axis control, but right next to 
Axis-controlled territory. So it was important for everyone who was basically fighting this war to have some kind of presence there. So then that brings us to 1942 and 43. Where does the Jewish agency send him then? So the Jewish agency send Collet to Istanbul. Um, at this point, there's, there's, they're starting to receive kind of these vague reports about the Holocaust as it's unfolding. Um, and Collet kind of becomes the Jewish agency's man in Istanbul to understand more about what's happening in occupied Europe to the Jews. Um, and while Kolek is there, because of his connections, he, he effectively, uh, you, know, you could argue that he, he serves the purpose that the Jewish agency has sent him there by providing services to the British and Americans so that he can kind of leverage that in order to find out more. Um, or you could argue that he also engaged in fighting the war, really, um, for, for the side of the Allies, in addition to gaining information. Uh, but that's what he does while he's there kind of um, debriefs people who were managing to get out of Europe. He debriefs them on how they escaped, on what the conditions were like there for Jews. Um, but a lot of people he also turned around and sent back in again. Um, he turned people into couriers. He bribed uh, members of um, Axis diplomatic uh, corps to send to take messages back into occupied Europe for him um, and to effectively kind of be deliver, delivery agents for him. Um, and yeah, so he would end up working with the OSS and he would working with uh, SIS to share the knowledge that he was getting on, you know, um, on, on allied bombing, for example, on the effectiveness of it in Romania, um, to find out um, what was happening with downed allied air crews and, you know, which areas might have um, partisans in that would be helpful to them so that if they needed to bail out, you know, and they could plot a course for maybe 10 more minutes, could they get are there areas that are better to bail out in than, than other areas? I can't get out of my mind that moment where you said that he managed to bribe people from the Axis to go back and be couriers. I mean, could you imagine the amount of persuasive power you have to have to be able to convince someone to work against something that they believe in? Unless they, he obviously picked the um, the ones that were weak and uh, not well not weak but you know agreed more with or disagreed more with what what the government was doing yeah it's quite amazing really i was i was amazed when i read about it myself because um it's just not a part of the historiography that you ever you ever hear about um i'll read you a passage actually from his from a bi- from his biography um which was um which was uh, given to the biographer in an interview that she conducted with somebody who worked with Kolek in istanbul Uh, Who were the couriers then? They were diplomats. People from the underworld didn't travel during the war. The couriers were from Romanian, Hungarian and Czech foreign offices. And we can assume there were those working for both sides. They were very cautious, were not among the righteous of the world. They asked for large amounts of money and were not willing to take too many chances. One had to find the first connection, decide who would speak with whom and check their connection with those who sent them. At this, Teddy excelled. So it's it's part of this very, it's very kind of intelligence work is cross-checking the information that you're getting um, and to make sure that it's kind of valuable, that it's, that it's true, uh, really. And when you're dealing with people who um, they, they want the money, but they don't really want to do much else, it's, it's imperative to make sure that the information you're getting is correct. So did you do anything else in Istanbul at the time? Well, one thing that he did manage to do was that he actually convinced um, the American OSS representative 
to send Jewish agency transmissions on his behalf back to Palestine so the British couldn't intercept them, which I found like a really interesting success on his part. I mean, how do you convince someone to do that? Um, but I mean, he managed it. Um, you did say 19- he was yeah, suave. On. He was a suave man. Yeah, he's a suave guy. And actually, when I, I, I started looking at him when I wrote, um, an article for Tablet Magazine and they've used, uh, an image of him in a tuxedo, um, for the article, which I just thought worked perfectly. Um, and just, just give, presents this image of this guy who's, who's this kind of, well, who is he? He's not even, you know, is he a secret agent? Well, for what country? There's no country. He doesn't represent anyone. And yet, he, he has his fingers in a whole range of different pies and he's accessing information that other people can't get hold of and that is useful for the Allied war effort. So it's really impressive stuff. I'm actually Googling that photo right now. Great picture, isn't it? Um, bear with me two seconds. It is just coming up. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, very handsome gentleman. Um, here, I'll read you a little bit more from his biography. Uh, in April 1943, while Teddy was in Istanbul, the Warsaw Ghetto uprising began and Teddy transmitted information about it to the British and the Jewish agency. And this, by the way, is also part of his job is to, is to, one, he's getting information about this Holocaust that's unfolding, um, is, is to make sure that the Allied power, powers are aware of it, that they need to know, that they need to understand that this is happening, um, in order that, that, that perhaps they can do something about it. Um, so he transmitted information about it to the British and to the Jewish agency. On April the 19th, when the uprising began, there was still some 60,000 Jews in the ghetto. It was an act of resistance. Um, now Teddy wrote the following. On the 15th and 16th of May, three German soldiers were sent to the ghetto with an order to deport 800 workers to an unknown destination. When the three did not return, a division was deployed to find them, which also failed to return. At this point, another group of Germans tried to enter the ghetto and was met with heavy gunfire. A few hundred German deserters took cover within the walls of the ghetto and together with the Jews and a number of Polish partisans continued to fight. These details were told to our source by a German customs official who arrived in Budapest on May 21st, 1943. It's the second time that organised attempts at self-defence have been reported to us. Since the first report in April, many of those whom we knew personally had been killed. I find that really interesting because um, people obviously claim that Poles and Polish partisans didn't help. But there you go, ladies and gentlemen, it has just been laid out for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, how do you think that they got their guns? How do you think they got their supplies? You know, It was, I, I, I know this isn't the topic that we're supposed to be talking about it, but it, it was such a, 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 an amazing act of resistance for what the Jews were doing in that ghetto. I mean, they knew they had no way out, but they're going to go out with a bang. I heard it was the first act of mass resistance to the Nazis in occupied Europe in World War Two. Probably. I wouldn't, I would not have been surprised it, um, because Warsaw is a city of two uprisings and people seem to forget that. Yeah. Warsaw defied, um, the Nazi regime and they hated it for it. Yeah. They did. And the Russians, the Russian army sat back while the, while the Germans raised it to the ground. Yeah. And there was, um, there was quite a few, um, Jewish, Jewish f- uh, fighters that took part in that. They were released from, uh, Gilshufka prison. 
Um, and some of them were hiding, obviously, uh, being hidden by other poles. They joined in. And actually, I know people don't like the film so much because of uh, Roman Polanski, but um, that film actually shows a lot of what happened in Warsaw at the time. And I think that's such a very well-made film. Yeah. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So anyway, moving away from uh, coming off topic, as, as we usually do on this podcast. So what he's doing right now is absolutely remarkable. He is, he is trying to basically make sure that the Allies are fully aware of what is happening. So, ladies and gentlemen, the Allies were aware of what was happening in the Holocaust. Yeah, they were. They were. They were very aware. So, okay, so now we've... Let's hit 1944, because we're now coming slowly, very slowly, towards the end of the war. Yeah, yeah, what's happening as the war, as it becomes clearer and clearer that the war is, is coming to an end, that Hitler is about to be defeated. So the internal tensions among the different armed Jewish groups in Palestine start coming, kind of getting more and more coming to the boil. Um, they have massive ideological divisions between them. Um, and the, you know, they, they very much differed in their approach and in their radicalism. Um, the main group, which was a Colex kind of faction was Haganah, which is, it means defense. And it was, it was the, it was what became the IDF effectively it was it was kind of the national movement um which he worked for however um a splinter group it, it had been maybe splintered away from about 20 years before it was called the Irgun um a man who would become prime minister of Israel much later Menachem Begin um was in charge of the Irgun towards the end of World War II um and they started getting very antsy um they also knew that the Holocaust was happening and they knew about restrictions to Jewish immigration uh, to mandate Palestine. And it was frankly, it was driving them mad. And they were, and, and by the time we get to 1944, um, another Jewish uh, dissident organization, the smallest of the, of the three called Lehi um, or the Stern gang um, really started, they, they effectively, they started killing people. They, they, de- they declared open season on the British. Um, and what they did, which was kind of perceived to be catastrophic by Colex group, the Haganah, was that they assassinated Lord Moyne, um, British uh, minister in the Middle East and a friend of Churchill's. Uh, and when, when they did that, they effectively jeopardized British support for Zionism. Uh, so Churchill, who always been a great friend to Zionism, kind of, um, distanced himself a great deal 
made a very critical speech um, in the House of Commons about it. Um, and this really kind of put the official, the Jewish agency on notice that they needed to clean house. And one of the things that they did was bring Collett back uh, to Palestine to help them deal with it. Uh, and he was involved with passing, again, using his connections with the British to pass information about the Jewish dissident organisations onto them um, to get them arrested, to get them apprehended and to kind of say, look, you know, these guys are a faction within us they don't represent us um and we'll prove it to you by handing information over to them uh over to you about them um but that was only part of what happened the other part of what happened was this very kind of internal um attempt uh largely kind of successful to to bring the dissidents under control of the larger larger jewish movement without even involving the british so you know, it involved Haganah guys going out, often kidnapping members of the Igun Lehi, beating them up, interrogating them severely, um, even holding them in their own kind of uh, uh, facilities for a while and then letting them go. It was known as the season, uh, like the hunting season, uh, when they really went after the dissidents because they, they were petrified that it was going to bring down the whole of the British army on their heads uh, and ruin everything that they were fighting for. There is also a civil war between these organisations, isn't there? Well, this is basically the civil war. Civil war never actually breaks out uh, in a formal sense uh, between the Jewish groups. But there's a civil war. There's a civil war about to break out kind of always under the surface. There are these tensions between Jews and Arabs in Palestine, uh, which eventually kind of breaks out into full full scale war um, when the British withdraw. That was a bit later. That's in 1948. What does uh, what does Kollek do though during this whole mess? Well, he's sent off to uh, to Britain once the war finishes. Um, and by the way, the end of the war only exacerbates the tensions between the internal tensions between the Jewish groups. But there's kind of there's an understanding that Kollek is kind of this consummate diplomat type character. Um, and he's also really good at finding out information. So they send him to London, which is the capital, you know, of the, of the British Empire, um, where all of the um, opinion formers are, where all of the decision makers are, to try and kind of uh, maintain some kind of relationship with the British. Uh, and they send him together with um, Abba Eban, a man who would become the uh, foreign minister, uh, and also, um, well, in his career, he'd end up being the foreign minister, the Israeli foreign minister, but he was also the ambassador to the UN and the ambassador to the USA uh, at the same time for Israel. Um, so he was another consummate diplomat who spoke several languages, but he had no involvement really in intelligence matters. That was much more colic. So they send them both over there at the same time to try and kind of um, repair the wounds that are being made in the relationship between the Jewish agency and the British. And, you know, it's, it's only, it's, if anything, it's partially successful, if it's successful at all. But, uh, but ultimately the tensions are spilling over once the war is finished so much that it's almost impossible to patch them up, I think. So after London, he's sent uh, somewhere else, isn't he? You go to the US. So after, uh, yeah, so he's in London in kind of the winter of 45, beginning of 46. Uh, then they end up sending him to New York. Now, uh, uh, all of the focus of kind of diplomatic activity at this time 
is moving, is physically moving from London to New York. You know, the United Kingdom is bankrupt. The empire is finished. Um, it, it's kind of obvious uh, to everyone that the future of Palestine is going to be determined by the UN in New York, not in London. Uh, and and Colic kind of, his physical movement represents that shift, the understanding that, you know, the big decisions are going to be made in the USA now. So now we need friends in the USA uh, and we need Colic over there. And Colic's there for a couple of years at that point. Um, I don't think he comes back to Palestine until somewhere around 1949. Um, and he's there the whole time when the British withdraw completely from Palestine, where it sinks into a, a war um, and the Israelis have their war of independence. And Collett's job becomes much more about financing that, you know, raising money um, to fight that war and then finding a way to acquire arms and getting them to the nascent state of Israel. Um which, which is a role that's basically profoundly suited to a man of his talents or a man of his talents is profoundly suited to that role. I think I should say. Uh, and there are so many little quirky little stories um, about what happened during that time that, that are, are really interesting. Um, for example, um, Colex says in his memoirs that he had set up base in a club called the Copacabana in Manhattan, which was frequented by all the famous people of the time one of whom being Frank Sinatra. And now because um, there was an arms embargo on anything going um, from uh, into Palestine uh, during the civil war, during the kind of war of independence, um, the FBI are watching Colic. So he ends up sending Frank Sinatra to make a, uh, a payoff for him with a million dollars. Frank Sinatra <laughs> eludes the FBI on behalf of Teddy Colic uh, to give up a whole bunch of money that Colic had managed to raise there. Um, it was one of the more colourful stories, I thought. Frank, I love how Frank Sinatra gets involved in all of this. He gets involved in everything, doesn't he? It goes on. I mean, his relationship with the United States actually continues. And Kolek is one of the prime movers and shakers in convincing the, the nascent state of Israel that, you know, our future is best, is best uh, in the direction of the West and that we should really um, be doing everything that we can to make friends with the United States. Uh, so that really, really uh, is down to him. Let's move forward a little bit in time, because uh, as our sp- uh, followers and listeners know very well, I, I hate, absolutely hate communism. Um, you mentioned something before when we had our conversation before the recording, uh, something to do with Khrushchev's speech in 1956. So for those who are um, don't know, uh, Khrushchev made a speech in 1956 denouncing Stalin. Yeah. So Khrushchev's made this speech um, where he's really shocked a lot of people in the USSR, um, a lot of high ranking people who heard it. And then a lot a lot of people, it was the responsibility of a lot of party functionaries to go around the USSR repeating this speech and making sure that people hear it. So they're really denouncing Stalin um, and rumours of this were getting out. I, I, I researched around it a little bit, um, but no one had a copy of the speech. Uh, that is until it was the Mossad who provided the CIA with the, with the text of the document. And this really was kind of the event that put Israeli intelligence on the map for Western intelligence services and made them think, OK, so this country is able to do stuff 
And it's worth having at the very least at that kind of intelligence to intelligence service relationship. Um, yeah. So if I read a bit about this from the, from the biography, uh, the most significant achievement that resulted from Israeli-American cooperation in the area of intelligence was the famous speech given secretly by Khrushchev on February 23rd, 1956, at the 20th Convention of the Communist Party. Um, in April, six weeks after the convention, the complete text of the speech reached Jim Angleton's desk after first passing through the hands of Amos Menor in Tel Aviv. Menor himself at first suspected that the speech was a forgery aimed at planting disinformation in the West. However, after consulting with experts and translators, he was convinced of its authenticity. He left his home with great excitement, en route to Ben-Gurion's home to deliver the document. So it was, uh, and it was Kolek who had the connections in the CIA to know the, where they could pass it on to. Um, and his main connection in the CIA really was a guy called Jim Angleton. And Jim Angleton, uh, and he was, he was kind of one of the pillars, the, one of the founders of the Central Intelligence Agency with a, a responsibility for counterintelligence. Um, a, a notoriously difficult guy to get on with and make friends with. Teddy Corlex succeeded in charming him and kind of building that relationship, which really served, I think, um, as the bedrock of the relationship that still exists today. He um, he also had a relationship with Kim Philby, you mentioned before, didn't he? Yeah, right. So this relationship is very interesting because it goes all the way back. But um, the, 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 the way that the story goes is that Kolek was in uh, Langley, Virginia uh, in the 50s with, um, with Jim Angleton. And they're walking around and he sees Kim Philby and he says, what's that guy doing here? And, you know, Angleton says, well, it's SIS. And Kolek goes, well, once a communist, always a communist. And actually, Kolek had known Philby since the 30s because Philby... <clears throat> Uh, had married a Viennese woman and was friendly with um, with certain people in Vienna who were known to be pro-Soviet uh, and left were very left wing. So he understood. So he had he had that kind of going all of the way back with Philby um, and knew that he was uh, a spy. He warned the Americans, but there's no evidence the Americans ever acted on that. Wow, that, I did not even know that. Yeah, really interesting. Really interesting stuff because it goes back to kind of the Jewish circles um, that he came from back in his hometown, really. And it kind of leapfrogs all of the other stuff that happened. Um, and, you know, Philby wasn't a spy uh, when Kolek knew him. He just knew that he was a very left wing guy. Um, and then was <laughs> for that reason was pretty surprised to see him at the heart of the CIA. <laughs> And he basically turned around to the Americans and said, hey, communist right here. And they go, yeah, 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 all right. Yeah, although uh, the British basically did the same thing. It's not like, you know, the warning signs about Philby were there, but I think there was just this kind of idea that, well, no, he's our man. No, of course not. Um, Oh, dear. So I've got a question. When does he give up this whole kind of intelligence gig? He tries to kind of relax. He tries to go. He actually gained um, a place at Harvard and he had gone off there to study. And apparently he was at Harvard for one day um, in the very early 50s when he got a call from Ben Gurion 
say, no, 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 I need you to come back and run my office. Uh, so he was really the first head of Ben Gurion's office. I think that was from 52 to 62. Did that for 10 years. And this time is also kind of like, everything's a bit of a gray area. So he's still kind of involved in intelligence um, while running the prime minister's office. Um, but he's kind of, he's persuaded to run for mayor of Jerusalem. Oh, wow. Um, at first, he's not so interested, but um, his brother, his, sorry, his son famously said to him, why, why do you want to do that? You'll be responsible for the garbage. You know? Um, so, really? Yeah. It's like, you know, you'll be responsible for municipal services. You know, this is a guy who's just gone from hand, agent handling and uh, meeting heads of state to this um, much more municipal role. So I do understand the sentiment. Um but yeah, he decides to go for it. And he goes for it. Interesting. He goes for it as an independent. He doesn't actually run on any party's ticket. He runs on his own ticket uh, and ends up doing the job for 28 years. Wow. 28 yeah. years. He's, he's the mayor of Jerusalem. Yeah. 28 years. And he's, it's kind of um, a, a really interesting time as well, because he becomes mayor um, while half of Jerusalem is, is controlled by Jordan. And just a couple of years after he takes over his mess, suddenly Israel has responsibility for the whole city. Um, and the way that he responds to that is very interesting um, and reportedly very enlightened as well. He tries to really bridge the gap between um, Jewish West and Arab East Jerusalem. Um, I'm not sure exactly how much success he had with that, uh, but he certainly tried. He certainly reached out. He sounds like a remarkable guy, really. Yeah, he does. A really remarkable character. And he's he's quite peripheral to the historiography. Like, I'd never really heard of him until his name popped out to me. I was doing research on Abba Eban in the, in the UK National Archives. And, um, yeah, his name kind of popped out. So I decided to download all of the declassified uh, MI5 files on him. Um, and, you know, just kind of got a glimpse into this figure who's who's so larger than life and who has done the more that you look at him, the more you, the more questions there really are about how did he do all these things? And, you know, where did he get it from? Who trained this guy to be an agent handler? You know, where, where did he, he never officially worked or was, was trained by anyone. You know? uh, and yet there he is at the center of everything. So what kind of legacy do you think he leaves behind? That's a really good question. What's <laughs> interesting about, um, Israel and the way that Israel has developed is the Kolek was very much part of a clique which ruled Israel for kind of the first, um, I don't know, 30, 40 years of its existence. Uh, now kind of in the B, in the Benjamin Netanyahu era, all of the people who come from the tradition that Kolek was against so all of the people who come from the tradition of the Ilgun are running the country and are, and are kind of on the political ascendancy. Um, you know, the kibbutz movement itself is kind of finished. Um, so it's, it's difficult to see what it is that Kolek leaves behind. But I think that you can you can still see him in the, the spirit of openness you like in in israel the the desire amongst israelis to be more cosmopolitan to be open to the world around them to be western centric uh that all came from Kolek. 
And, you know, if, if you look at kind of the way Israel relates to America, which is basically, you know, we need you and we need you in order to survive and we, and, and your funding and the way that the United States treats Israel, which is effectively as its friend in the Middle East, that all really came from Teddy Kollek. So I think that's, that's probably his greatest legacy is the US Israeli relationship. Mark, this has been so excellent. I've had so much fun talking about this incredible, remarkable man. Definitely got to come back on because this was just, I loved it. So thank you so much. Yeah, bring me back. We'll talk about World War II in the next one. Oh, I love it. I, well, I never get enough of World War II. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.